Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. And I just wanted an option that I can get a lot of contacts in a short amount of time with a young bird dog. And that was the closest thing to where I could consistently go out and get a, you know, 10, 20 or 30 flushes. And, and so I just tried to take advantage of the resources that I had here. Why do we spend all year training dogs? So that we have the best possible hunting partner. At the end of the day, having a well-trained hunting partner doesn't help if you can't figure out where to actually go hunt. Scout and Hunt Maps is the only mapping software on the market focused on upland habitat and shows exactly where and when a timber cut was completed along with specifying what's upland or lowland habitat. In some states, you can even know exactly what type of timber is in an area without stepping foot on the ground. Scout and Hunt Maps was developed by an actual upland hunter and guide that knows the importance of having quality hunting covers pinned on the map before you even hit the road. Scout and Hunt even works for you in the field without phone service, without having to remember to save the area before you even go in. Once you get set up on Scout and Hunt, then you'll be able to spend more time actually hunting rather than trying to figure out where to go hunt. When checking out, be sure to use GDIY10 to save 10% and sign up for Patreon if you want to save even more. Spend less time asking other people where to go hunt and get Scout and Hunt today. Scout today, hunt tomorrow. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog, and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. All right, we are joined this week with Jim Burris to talk about a uh, type of hunt that probably doesn't get addressed as often as it probably should and people don't really know a whole lot about, but that is snipe and rail hunting uh, down here in the southeast specifically. Jim, how you doing tonight, man? We're doing pretty good. How are you, Nick? Uh, living the dream as always. Can't <laughs> complain over here. Uh, so first off, before we jump into all the fun hunting stuff, uh, you know, introduce yourself to the world. Tell everybody where you're calling from, what you do, and, and how you kind of got into the crazy dog world. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name's Jim Burris. Um, I live in central North Carolina. Uh, I'm a fish biologist. Uh, it's my day job. And I've been upland hunting. Well, I guess it all started whenever I was a teenager and my cousin had an English pointer and uh, he took me out rough grouse hunting in West Virginia. And it was just something mesmerizing about listening to that bell running through the woods and watching the dog. And so as soon as I was able, I got an English setter. Um, had her for 13 years. Took a couple year gap between her um, and my current dog, which is a poodle pointer. Um, and, and, and so we, here in North Carolina, we're not really blessed with the quail numbers and, and grouse numbers like we used to be. So yeah. uh, I got a versatile dog and I'm trying to be as versatile as I can to <laughs> get it on as many birds. Well, before we go on in, into that topic, what, uh, what made you decide on poodle pointer? Yeah. So I love my setter. Um, and I could see myself having a, another setter someday. Um, but here in North Carolina, um, you know, I wanted a more versatile dog and my setter didn't like to retrieve and she didn't like the water. Um, and so I was wanting to do some waterfowl hunting, um, and, and snipe woodcock, uh, stuff like that. And I was researching some dogs. And another thing about the setter that kind of made me start looking elsewhere is the hours of picking birds out of the floor, you know, <laughs> after, after a grouse hunt. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when I started looking at breeds, I, I kind of gravitated quickly to the wire hair breeds. And, um, and, I, and I, searching around, I, I stumbled on a, a breeder out of Maryland, which I think you actually had on your podcast recently, Mark Olcott. Oh, okay. Uh, Surrey I... Bird Poodle Pointers. And uh, nice. you know, I talked to him, and, and I just really liked the breeding program he had going on and what he was doing. And I just, you know, as soon as I talked to him, I knew the Poodle Pointer was what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and so the rest, the rest is history. So I got I got to ask you on the setter uh, stuff, do you do – you, do you think that the the lack of water or retrieve was? I mean, obviously, ultimately, there's some kind of genetics that play a part in it. But was it just not worth your time or energy to to force fetch it, or did you give that a go? Or what's your thought process on that? Because you know, a lot of people they'll be like, "Well, most setter retrieves," or you know, yeah, they, yeah. They just kind of touch on that for me for a, for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and when when I got my English setter, I was strictly a rough grouse hunter in West Virginia, uh, and that's all I really cared about. And uh, I got her uh, when she was about nine months old from a field trial guy. Okay. And uh, he had already started her, and for me, as long as she pointed and I can shoot a bird that's over, all that's you care. all. Yeah, and so I really didn't even try to get her in water or even retrieve because, you know, it's pretty easy to find a down grouse. <laughs> she, she would run up to the bird and sniff it and maybe put it so, in her mouth for so a second. So she would hunt so, dead yeah. a little bit for you, yeah, just enough yeah. to kind of say it's in that general exactly, direction. Yeah. I got you. And, and, and she, she was what you would, you know, a lot of people would call a meat dog. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was okay with that. So. I, n- nothing wrong with that at all. And so you got you got the poodle pointer from Mark. I didn't know that before we got on here that I didn't know that that's where you got them from so that's that's pretty interesting uh has it played out to what you were kind of hoping for when you decided to go with that breed yeah it actually has uh it's it's kind of been exactly you know i did a lot of uh, research you know being in a a science background you know i I researched things uh to the point of nausea um (laughs) and uh and and yeah the pitta pointer's been everything i i hoped it would be 
Um, but I'm also the kind of guy that likes to dabble in other stuff. And that's mm-hmm. why I like, I, I could see myself getting a, another setter someday. Yep. Um, yeah. Cause with my, with my previous setter, you know, I kind of feel like I missed that pivotal time in her life. Um, you know, the first nine months to kind of really do proper socialization and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And, so, and she was kept in a kennel, uh, from the gentleman I got her from. And so she was always a little socially distanced and independent and, it's and whatnot. A, it's it's amazing how just that little small window, the nine months, you know, you're not you're not gonna get like a horrible dog by any means, but you're right, you know, I got my first dog started and then I got my second one as a pup. And you do kind of pick up on those little the the little details, right? You know, yep. something that you probably don't even notice when it's just you and the first dog, right? But when you really kind of see what the nine months of you exposing them the way that like just the knowledge of you know exactly how they are exposed to to this or socialized to that situation it, it does kind of make a world of difference in how you go about planning stuff around that individual dog yeah absolutely i mean just being able to read your dog you know being able to spend that nine months with them you kind of know their behaviors and you know especially that first season when you're hunting them um i had my dog in north dakota at 10 months old and you know, I knew when he was getting birdie and, you know, yep. even though sometimes maybe he would bust the birds and stuff, I, you know, I knew when, you know, action was about to start. So, uh, yep. Whereas my setter, you know, it took me months to really learn that. Get and, to know uh, him. Get, yeah. So. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting a started dog. It's actually preferable in a lot of situations for, mm-hmm. and for a lot of people, but, uh, there are pros and cons to that. Just mm-hmm. as like, there's pros and cons of getting a pup, right? Yeah, but, Absolutely. So let's go ahead and jump into, you know, you reached out to me and you're like, hey, man, you want to talk about Snipe? And I'm like, absolutely, <laughs> I want to talk about Snipe because that is not, that's not a topic that you hear a lot about, right? And and I know here speaking on, you know, with just some of my core group of friends around here in Tennessee, everybody, at least somebody, once a year, it's like snipe season like i thought that was a myth like (laughs) snipe hunting what it talk to us about snipe like you know most people and we kind of talked about this the other day generally think of it as that kind of wise tale right you know go out in the woods with a bag and a flashlight and you know scream up a tree or whatever it is you know what (laughs) first off how did you come about to getting into snipe hunting well (laughs) you're right and and i run into that little bit of that myself and to be honest i i just heard uh other people hunting this area uh mostly when they drain the waterfowl impoundments you know north carolina has a lot of waterfowl impoundments and when they drain them um i would always hear stories of hey there's snipe out here or there and, and whatnot and and uh last year i went out and tried to find them uh in february when when they drained the water and i didn't find a single one um, and then this year, um, we were actually out scouting for Woodcock and my dog, uh, Manu is his name. Uh, Manu went running through this field as they were filling it, uh, for waterfowl and up, up came three birds and they flew right by me. And I was like, well, those weren't Woodcock. And I was like, this had to be snipe. And, um, and yeah, and that's what really started it. Um, that was mid November and we've been snipe hunting one to two days every week you know kind of since then um and i think we've put up anywhere between 100 to 150 birds so far wow um so it's like you had that learning curve and then once you just kind of connected the dots on that first first bird you're off to the races then 
Yeah, exactly. And and then, you know, as we were getting into this habitat and trying to figure it out, you know, I was trying to figure it out at the same time my dog was figuring it out. Uh, you know, we started coming across rail and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, as far as bird contacts and young dog, this is the best opportunity, like yeah. close to me. Um, you know, we get good runs of woodcock here in North Carolina where we can get 20, 30 flushes a day. Um, but, you know, I was going out in two hours and sometimes putting up 30 birds with little effort or as wow. woodcock you're kind of beating the brush to, yeah. to get those so um and, and a lot of the snipe habitat i'm hunting is you know very close to my my home um and then the further we go over towards the coast you know the grounds and the suitable habitat increases and you know it goes from having you know 10 to 15 acre fields to 50 100 acre um suitable habitat uh, for snipe so so you kind of compared uh, the snipe a little bit into woodcock, and for yeah. better or worse, I mean they to the regular eye, right? They're very similar in a lot of ways. If you don't have them side by side, you you probably wouldn't be able to pick pick apart the differences. But you know, I have held a snipe and I've held a woodcock. There are some differences. Um, real quick, like you talked about woodcock mainly being in dense forest right mm-hmm. you know it's like they're going to be close to water they need that 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 moist soil to where they can get their beak down and get the worms but talk to us about the snipe because you just said that you're woodcock hunting and you got up a snipe right so are you like talk to us about the cover is it really that similar that uh into the environment like how did you come across a snipe while you're hunting the woodcock yeah, so that was uh, more by chance. We were actually walking along the impoundments to get to the uh, uh, woodcock habitat that I wanted okay. to scout. Um, but yeah, typically, so as far as the soil conditions, uh, it would be very similar for the, the woodcock and snipe. But like you said, the woodcock are going to be kind of in your uh, hardwoods and, and stuff like that in your thicker cover. Now, that said, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot of these waterfowl impoundments and stuff that I hunt uh, and a lot of swamps have, you know, where that water starts to dry up, a lot of times you have a lot of light getting in there and you get a very brushy edge. Yeah. Uh, You could definitely put up some woodcock around the edges of uh, what you would call snipe habitat, but typically they don't overlap. Uh, I've still yet to put up a woodcock while I've been out snipe hunting. Um, but you know, I've put up woodcock in the edges of the fields I'm hunting, you know, previously in years past. So gotcha. I know it's certainly possible, but yeah, the, the snipe like more open habitat. Um, and, and so they'll be in fields and marshes and stuff like that. But as far as what they eat, the snipe will, you know, they predominantly eat worms, but they, they also have a little bit more varied diet. And so they'll eat, uh, um, insect larvae and snails and crustaceans and stuff like that. I well. got you. So they're not a one trick pony like the woodcock from my understanding. Yeah. They pretty much only eat worms. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Do what about their migration pattern? Are they similar to woodcock or waterfowl? You know, what have you found out about that? Are they generally earlier to arrive than woodcock? Have you noticed any kind of trend in the short time that you've been hunting it? Yeah, so it seems to me, you know, a lot of times you hear uh, talk people talk about the frost line. Uh, it seems to me like the snipe will arrive a little bit earlier, uh, and um, my guess would be that they'll leave a little bit later. Um, and they, you know, they travel, when they migrate, they, tra- they travel further south than Woodcock. Uh, some snipe will even travel down to Central America and South America uh, for the winter. And so I think they like a little bit warmer habitat, and so they'll probably be the first to arrive. 
and then your woodcock will be slowly after that. So, you know, sniper probably in front of that frost line and, and, and woodcock are probably right at it or a little bit behind it. So Gotcha. Now, in terms of dog work, how are the snipe acting with dogs? Are they similar to woodcock? You know, woodcock have that, that typical uh, uh, reputation for holding really well for dogs. Uh, you know, whether that's the bird or the cover that they're in, you know, it that's probably up for debate but what's your opinion on how they handle for dogs are they a good like intro level bird or what's your opinion on that so snipe aren't necessarily a good intro level uh, bird because they don't hold well um they are a challenge and you know if i was to compare it with another bird if you if you've ever gone late season sharp tail hunting uh i would kind of compare real uh, flighty uh, snipe to yeah they are spooky um a lot of the birds that we found early on um, and would wild flush them. Uh, and I started to learn that if there wasn't adequate cover and wind, he couldn't get close enough to him to point him without him flushing. Okay. And so I really learned to pick and choose my days, um, it, when I go out. And so I want, you know, there to be a, a nice wind, maybe about 10 miles an hour to 15, you know, I don't really like gusty wind cause then you kind of get swirls and stuff. Well, know? that's a pretty it, good wind down here in the Southeast for us. Yeah. And you, and we can get, you know, a good number of days with that. Um, but this year it's interesting. We were getting a lot of days where it was like, uh, four miles an hour, one mile an hour and stuff. And, and those are just really tough. Uh, so you, was, so you didn't even mess on those days. Like you didn't even fool with going on it, those it days. First, at first I did, um, and really it's probably good that I did at first because he would literally run over the birds and smell them. Sometimes he wouldn't even know that he flushed the birds, but he was still getting, hey, you know, because I, I shot a few of them that he didn't point early on just so he knew, hey, this is what we're hunting for, and he could smell it and get yeah. in his mouth whatnot. Um, and then he would keep bumping birds in those conditions, and then, um, you know, he would, he would start, you, you could tell he's starting to figure it out is being a little bit more cautious backing off a little bit and then once we had some good consenting conditions you know he he pointed every single bird that evening uh and that was kind of like perfect you know cover density if 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 the cover density is too thin you know they're very spooky too and a lot of times even though the dog can point them uh you may not get to them close enough with the shotgun to get a good shot at them Uh, because they do come out very fast they're like half the size of a woodcock and twice as fast is, (laughs) is what i tell everyone and, uh, and so there is a, there is a learning curve for, uh, bird dogs. Now, if you want just a good, you know, a, a high volume of contacts, you know, it could be for, good for a dog, especially if you have a young dog that's, um, only done pin race birds and, you know, they don't really give the bird much room and they're creeping in yeah. two, three feet away or something like that. So they could be good in that respect. Uh, but if you have a dog that has had a lot of experience with wild birds, uh, particularly like pheasant, you know, that like to run or sharp tails that are are pretty spooky or, or some of the rough grouse that are, you know, that have been pressured a good bit. Uh, I think that those dogs can adapt to hunting, uh, snipe, uh, pretty well. Um, and you know, whenever I started hunting these birds, I didn't know a whole lot about them. And, and so I, I did a lot of research into them, try to figure out, you know, their habitat and habits and stuff like that. And I kept seeing, Oh, you can't hunt them with pointing dogs. You can't hunt them with pointing dogs. And, and you know, it's very difficult to hunt them with pointing dogs, but it's absolutely possible, especially when you're doing 10 flushes, a an hour if you get two birds pointed and you yeah. go up and shoot them then you know, to me that's worth it so well quick quick sidestep have you hunted them with a flushing dog before or just pointing dogs i have not hunted them with a flushing dog um you know if you have a close ranging flushing dog i would I, that would probably absolutely be um a good way to hunt them be the right um, tool you know, for the typically, job typically 
Yeah, typically a lot of times what I've, I've seen is people that snipe hunt uh, will just have retrievers at their side to retrieve the birds, and they'll just push a field kind of like a pheasant hunt. They'll just get a big line of hunters and push a field, um, and, and that's how they'll hunt them. Gotcha. So you touched on it for a second, but I want you to paint – paint a picture for us of the cover what's it look like you know you, you mentioned brushy shrubby areas you know the 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 drained uh, duck impoundments what's the ground look like like is it just straight mud is it you know the only times i've seen snipe it's all i mean it's probably been two maybe three times it seems like there's always water up to around my shins or something like you know rubber boot height talk to us like what what are you walking through to to know that okay a snipe could be in this yeah, and so you, you really just need some damp um, soil, you know, soft enough they can get uh, beaks in to probe for food and stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of times you are walking in, I would say, one to three inches of water. I mean, the ground is saturated at your feet. When, once you start getting into too deep of water, um, you don't really see um, the snipe in that deeper water. Um, you know, so I would say four inches and less is typical snipe habitat. Okay. Um, interesting. Once you get into that deeper water, uh, if you got heavy grass, that's where you start to find your rail. Uh, your rail may be in, you know, a foot, foot and a half of water and they're just kind of like hanging on the edge of the grass and whatnot. Gotcha. Um, so you can have some overlap with snipe and rail possibly depending on the water levels. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of overlap with rail and snipe, um, and and so we we got several sore rail. Uh, we found some king rails, but we the first king rail I put up, I wasn't sure I was even allowed to shoot the bird, so I didn't <laughs> shoot it. And I <laughs> pulled out the phone and started looking up what was that bird, and I found out it was a king rail. Uh, and then we put up several king rails um, uh, after season closed in North Carolina. So, um, so how many different types of rail are there and, that you're allowed to hunt? And are they all like located in the same general area? Or is it just kind of, you know, this one is known for this region, this one's known for that region, kind of like turkey or something? Yeah, so rail are, are kind of more of a coastal bird. They, they hug the coast more than snipe and woodcock. Um, and, but, yeah, I mean, you can find snipe and woodcock throughout the entire country if you have the right habitat. Yeah. Um, but the rail, they, they hug the coast a little bit more, and weather patterns and stuff like that will kind of dictate, you know, how many are further inland and how many along the coast. A lot of times when people hunt rail, they're on a Carolina skiff and just floating over a flat and shooting them as they get up. That's uh, what I was about to say. The, the only yeah. time I've heard anybody hunting rail is they're usually in some kind of little kayak, canoe, skiff, something like that, and they just kind of push, pull around, they get up, shoot it, yeah. and they send a dog for a retrieve. But you're saying that you you can actually get some action on those birds, too, if the conditions are right. Yeah, they actually hold pretty well. Um, and and so I think every sore rail that I killed this year uh, was, was off a pointed dog okay um and, and so they actually hold better than snipe uh the thing about rail uh the sore rail are, are pretty small you don't get a whole lot of meat off of those uh and so i think at least in the future any sore rail that i shoot is just going to be just as a reward for the dog is <laughs> you know for perfect work um but so if the, i see a sore that's not off a perfect point then it's it's going to fly away so that's how um, little meat is on there still like there's such little meat on there that you're like it's not even worth full yeah life. But then you have clapper rail, Virginia rail, and king rail. Um, okay. So there's four species of rail that you can hunt. And the other three species are bigger, considerably bigger than soras. Um, so if you're out there snipe hunting, you would definitely shoot those because they're bigger than a snipe. 
Gotcha. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, one thing about rail, they're not very challenging to shoot. Um, if you think of a bird that's weighed down by his feet, that's kind of the way a sore rail flies slow to get off the ground. And his feet are just kind of hanging down. It's almost like a duck coming in for landing. Um, and so they're not a challenge to shoot. Um, but the, the sniper, you know, they come out of there with afterburners on. So. so you're, you're telling me that you can actually get some dog work on these birds. They hold well for point, uh, and they're easy to shoot, right? <laughs> so that might, it yeah. sounds like that might be a very good intro bird, not just for dogs, but for people <laughs> as well. Like, you know, I'm trying to hear the downside. So the soar rail is small, uh, maybe too small for some people to even take a, take a poke at. But what what's the downside to the other rails? Like, you know, how come, you know, it sounds like you kind of focus more on snipe than, than rail. Is it just because there's it's deeper water generally? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a challenge to kind of focus on the rail. They're not; um, they're a little bit more sporadic, at least where I hunt them. Uh, if we were over towards the coast more, uh, I think you could target rail a little bit uh, better than you can uh, where I live locally. Uh, a few of the places I've sniped hunt uh, along the coast, there does seem to be more rail over there. And so, I mean, if you wanted to target them, then you, you the rail tend to like the, the thicker vegetation than what you would find a snipe in. Okay. And so if you are targeting snipe, then you'll you'll get some opportunistic rail. Uh, but if you're really focusing on rail, then you're probably going to be missing out on a lot of snipe just because the rail are in deeper water and they tend to like uh, thicker, heavier grass. Gotcha. And so describe. So I, I I've held a snipe. You know that was Lucy's first wild bird retrieve. Just shot wild on a flush up in North Dakota. I've seen them. I've yet to. You know, I've probably seen one in person, not even realize what I saw, kind of what you described, pulling up your phone, like, what what the heck is that? Describe what a rail, like, is, what it looks like. You know, you just said the sore is smaller, the other ones are bigger, but, like, I guess, I don't know, describe what they look like. Are they longer beak like the snipe and woodcock, or, you know, what, what, what do they look like? Yeah, so they do have a little bit longer beaks, uh, particularly the, uh, um, the kings and the Virginia and the clapper. The Sora actually has a, a smaller beak uh, and t- tends to have like a yellowish tint um, to it. And if you think of birds that you would see running on the beach, um, you know, they're, they're kind of long, skinny legged. Yeah. Um, and and the, and the birds are, are known for um, squeezing through thick cover. And I believe, I can't remember which one. Uh, I think it might be the Sora. Um, there, it's also... Um, called the skinny bird or something like that either sore it might be like translated as like skinny bird or skinny oh so you mean bird hunters gave it a second name that you know nickname well, like everything it, it, else it's, <laughs> it's from the yeah it, it's from the habitat that they live in they're just able to squeeze through the the grass yep um and soros um a lot of times are harder for people to see um unless you're actually flushing them because the grass is so thick um, okay so if you're just looking if a bird watcher is out looking for soros Chances are they're not going to see them because they're going to be in the thick brush and they're, and they're pretty small. But, um, you know, so you don't really see them until you, until you flush those out. Usually the, the kings and the Virginias and stuff like that, um, then you can potentially see them as you're walking up to, to flush them. Gotcha. So with, I got to ask, with with these being kind of, you know, worm eaters and, and insect eaters, whatever, very similar to woodcock, kind of like what we already discussed, 
Woodcock kind of have a few reputations. One we've already discussed about holding well for a dog. The other is a lot of dogs don't like retrieving them. They don't like the the smell or the taste or or something of them. Is it, do you see kind of similarities in either species, the rail or snipe, in that regards? Well, I haven't really noticed it with the the rail, but I have noticed it with the snipe. Um, you know, I. Um, a few people have told me that uh, dogs don't like to pick up the, the woodcock because of smell. I'm not sure that's true because I've yeah. also heard uh, that it's because they have a lot of little pin feathers that you know get in their mouths and stuff like that. And definitely if you hold a, 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 a snipe or woodcock, you get your hands full of those little yep. feathers. Kind of similar to pro- uh, people probably – a lot of people know uh, woodcock, but for those that don't know uh, woodcock or sniper or something, probably similar to a dove, morning dove. You know, yeah, the, the, yeah. the feathers just kind of come out and they, they get stuck in the dog's mouth. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, they're really small. You kind of have to wipe them on your pants to get yeah. them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, uh, no same. issues really with the, uh, with the rail, but you kind of see a little uh, similarity in the snipe with, in that. Yeah, uh, I was actually hunting with a gentleman yesterday and uh, his dog did not want to hold the the snipe now i know who you hunted with yes i know who you hunted with yesterday are we allowed to call him a gentleman (laughs) uh well how did that hunt play out because that was his first hunt on snipe right like so you 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 got him out and chasing these birds what did he think about all of it you know from a, a very beginner's perspective yeah, so it was the first time he had, had gone out, and he successfully got his first ever snipe. Um, it was a uh, um, so so one thing about uh, dog work with these birds. Um, if you have multiple dogs, I would recommend running one dog at a time, uh, just because it is hard to pin them down. And a lot of times you have two dogs and stuff like that. If the other dog doesn't see the dog on point and isn't good at backing, then your second dog's probably going to flush all the birds your uh, dog's trying to point. Yep. Um, and so we, we were trying to run one dog at a time. Uh, and so the first bird that got up was a wild flush, and we shot at, uh, well, we shot that bird, and that was uh, his first snipe. And and so we that was the first um, encounter his dog had had with a snipe. And so we let, let her mouth it, smell it, um, you know, kind of retrieve it, uh, so to speak. And, uh, and then, you know, she, she did a, a unproductive point after that in a field that we had, uh, wild flushed, um, to snipe out of. And so I feel like she was learning this thing. Um, yeah. I don't know how they smell according to Woodcock, but they seem to, their dogs seem to learn to scent pretty well. Um, and we, we put up four birds, um, uh, early on in the day and then we tried a second spot and we put up eight birds there. Uh, but yesterday we had, when we were hunting, we had about an eight, probably an eight mile an hour wind, but we had gusts of probably 20. Um, and, and so that made the challenge, uh, uh, conditions a little bit challenging. Um, my dog stuck a point at 40 yards and <laughs> whenever I got up to my dog, the bird got up 40 yards out and I couldn't even get a shot at it. Yeah. And, and so, um, and, and with the gust and the sustained wind, they were both coming from different directions and, uh, and so we, we, we did wild flush you know, several birds that were in shorter cover because they saw us coming and, and they, they were just getting out of dodge. And, uh, um, and then that's one thing that, you know, I, you talked about earlier, uh, cover density has a lot to do with how well these birds work for a dog. Uh, you want a uh, cover that's a little bit taller. Like I would say a foot uh, to you know, 15 inches tall is kind of what you're looking for. 
uh, cover that doesn't isn't super thick. You know, it's kind of good patches with some open ground in between. Uh, that's ideal. Uh, but you will find snipe out in kind of that short cover, solid mud flat, no vegetation. You, you can't get close enough to those birds, especially with a dog. Um, but you also have to like hunt these birds kind of like in stealth mode. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, kind of, I was mesmerized about my cousin's English pointer when I was younger and that bell running through the woods. So I like to run bells on my dogs. Um, but you know, I, I learned that, um, I can, Manu can get closer to these birds and, and stick them, um, a lot better without the bell. Okay. So, um, so, so you noticed a, a, a noticeable difference, uh, with or without the bell, because that's kind of a, a topic that's up to, to up for debate on all upland species, not yeah. not just snipe. You know, some people say it doesn't make a difference on any birds. Other people swear by it. But you you saw a very clear difference on running with or without a bell on these birds. Yeah, and, and it's hard to say if it's the bell or just Manu learning to hunt these snipe. Um, you know, because you know when we took the bell away, then. He, he started like pegging these birds and, but I was also learning that to pick and choose my days to go out. So whether it was exactly the bells, hard to say, but you know, given the personality of these birds being flighty and spooky, yeah. I think the bell, you know, could definitely play, play a part of it. Um, well, why don't you give it a shot one day? Just go take the bell, put the bell on them just to see, just for the heck of it. And then it's yeah, like, if you notice it, it's, they're bussing and you're not getting a shot, take the bell off. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, once I get a, a few more, you know, hunts under the belt that, you know, I'm, I'm like, he's got this, then yeah. I'm going to put the bell back on and see what <laughs> Just happens. To see. Report yeah. back to me. So, I'll, I'll expect an update on that. <laughs> yeah. And, and now the, the interesting thing about, you know, kind of the progression of Manu, you know, my uh, Manu is, uh, he'll be two, two years old next week and he's a, a hard running, uh, poodle pointer. And, mm-hmm. you know, he hasn't really used a whole lot of caution going into birds and, you know, so he'll, he'll run right up on a, uh, woodcock and I love watching cause he'll, he'll stop me you know, dead cold, but yeah, you know, he sniped that wasn't working. And, you know, he has a strong tendency to track and, but I could see the progression. And one reason why I think he does better on snipe now is now he's locking up when he gets that first scent, um, real early. So before the birds that he would point, those birds would be. 10 15 yards off the end of his nose mm-hmm. now some of the birds he's pointing is 20 40 yards off the end of his nose so he's respecting yeah. them a little bit more yeah but exactly. also to your point a second ago you've also been picking days with the ideal wind too yeah so yep. uh i'm i'm interested have you seen his have you seen his hunting change on other species of birds since you've been doing snipe like ha- has that respect for the the scent transitioned into over uh, to other species yeah so the only thing we've really hunted uh so far this year to where i can answer that would be woodcock and they hold really tight already mm-hmm. um yeah so i had a uh, a baby a few well the wife had a baby a few months ago <laughs> <laughs> so normally i try to head out west or, or go up to west virginia and rough grouse hunt and i haven't been able to do that just yet this year um, so I would be really curious to see how he does, uh, on roughs or, or out West on some sharp tails or late season pheasants. So. Well, I mean, you know, you do have the unicorn in Western North Carolina, just, yeah, just throwing it yeah. out there. <laughs> well, yeah, we got the Sasquatch in Western North Carolina the unicorns are East coast with the Bob white quail. So. <laughs> well, and I mean, 
to you know we're joking about that you do have grouse and quail in the state of north carolina but to your point you know sometimes you just need more plentiful birds and we talk about woodcock all the time on this podcast because that is the most available bird especially in tennessee when the migration comes through but you you wanted something in addition to woodcock and so you went after snipe and rail and that's something that i can honestly say i've yet to attempt here in tennessee yeah and really you know a lot of times i would hear oh you you have to have birds to make the bird dog and you know wild birds and, yeah you know and and, you know, I know this has been covered on a lot of podcasts where, you know, on the East Coast, if you're hunting rough grouse, you know, you may get 20 or 30 flushes in a year. And, you know, that's if you, you know, know what you're doing. Um, where out West, they're getting 20, 30, even 100 flushes a day. And so dogs are able to kind of learn and mature a lot faster out there and respect the birds. And, and I just wanted an option that I can get a lot of contacts in a short amount of time with a young bird dog. And that was the closest thing to where I could consistently go out and get a, you know, 10, 20 or 30 flushes. And, and so I just tried to take advantage of the resources that I had here. Um, you know, I can, I can go equal distance and, and woodcock hunt, but the, you know, that woodcock migration is kind of, um, you know, sporadically there one day and gone the next. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of times you're, you're even on a decent day where in central North Carolina, you're probably talking 10 birds. Uh, so a lot of times woodcock hunting, I would travel to the coast, which is two and a half hours for me. Uh, and over there, you know, when the, when flights are in, we'll get 20, 30, 40 birds a day. Yeah. Well, 20, 30, 40 flushes a day, you know, it's hard to tell how many are reflushes. Yeah. Um, and so I was really trying to get something local and, and when hearing the stories about people hunting these waterfowl impoundments when they would drain them, you know, it's kind of what uh, got me interested in it but actually i ran into a retired navda judge uh i took manu out to the game lands just for a, a long walk to burn off some energy um and i ran into a retired navda judge out there who uh, was taking off some waders uh in the back of his truck and he had a spinoni there and i was like are you out there hunting and because i was like why would you be waiting a swamp otherwise and i said yeah we're down there rail hunting i was like really and, uh, and, and that was the first time I had heard anyone hunting rail and, yeah. uh, but I knew of them, but I didn't know anything about them or that they're even, you know, around this area. Um, and, um, when we discovered this, the snipe, we started hunting those and then we just happened on the, on the rail as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was actually someone else out there that was rail hunting that turned me onto the rail as well. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, Man, in Tennessee, it's like I very rarely come across any other hunters. You know, maybe if you go out in a in a spot that, you know, still holds quail. Uh, but I think I've come across one other grouse hunter that didn't go with me while I was out there over the years. But I've never seen anybody <laughs> sniper rail hunting like and, and then you just happen upon a nav to judge and it kind of got you got your wheels spinning. But it's a testament to like you you have this dog and especially you when you know last year when he was young and around one year old it's like all right i need bird contacts with these dogs and instead of you know always driving 10 miles or 10 10 miles 10 hours west or northwest or whatever to get on these bird contacts it's like all right i need some local options here so you thought outside the box and you figured out a completely different ball game that i guarantee you you know yeah you ran into one person 
but have you run into anybody else that you know that hunts these birds? No, that's the only one person I've, I've uh, run into. Right. Um, but it's very interesting. You know, I, on my uh, social media, I've been posting a lot of these pictures of uh, rail and snipe. And yeah. There's a lot of people out there that are interested in them just because, you know, it's another opportunity. They don't have contacts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I wish it was 10 hours for me to get out west. <laughs> you know, seven, you know, well, last year we went to North Dakota and it's a 27 hour drive for us. And, you know, that's a yeah. long haul. It is. Um, and, and so even a couple hours here is nothing. Just, well, you know. and, you know, it's like, yeah, a lot of people get these dogs and they'll do these annual trips. You know, I've been doing it. You know, here lately, the past couple of years, I've, I've been doing multiple trips. But when you first start out, you kind of do one big annual trip. And if you just save the the dogs and the, the bird contacts for one week a year, you know, you, you're kind of – the deck is loaded against you, right? You know, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's better than nothing. Go out there, go wear them out, be disciplined, get as milk it as much as you can. But you need to find something local to you outside of pen raised birds. If you really want to develop these bird dogs, you have to find wild birds of some sort. Yeah, and to that point, you know, a lot of times people take these uh, trips out west and what, and you know, I'm definitely guilty of this. And you go out there, and your dog doesn't do exactly what you need it to, you know, especially if you're testing for utility tests or something like that, you know, you, you tend to backslide on your, on your training a little bit. Cause you know, that rooster gets up in front of you. It's kind of hard not to pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, having, uh, birds that are local that you can get a lot of contacts with you, you don't feel bad about not pulling the trigger too, especially if you're not getting that dog work that you're looking for. Yep. And so you can use the woodcock and the snipe more for training tools um and you know my dog's steady the wing shot in fall right now and he'll be uh, doing utility tests here in a few months and if if i just started shooting at these birds that he is wild flushing then that's going to create a lot of bad habits yep. and so the, getting this number of contacts even though it's a real challenge for him um he's getting a lot more training in than what i could you know what i could afford to get in pen raised birds or chucker yeah no absolutely so, so obviously, you know, there, you have the benefit and the plus of more bird contacts for all the reasons that we just discussed. Uh, what about table fare? How does it taste on the table? You know, it's uh, Woodcock have a bad reputation for how they taste. I personally don't have any issues with it. I found that, you know, if you don't overcook it, you know, keep it medium rare, you know, do, do your tip, take care of it in the field and then take care of it in the kitchen right is it very similar to snipe and rail or is it just i don't know hey, give me your thoughts <laughs> yeah so um the snipe uh, breast meat is a good dark red meat just like woodcock um and a while back i ate um i had a, a large bowl of deboned breast meat that had woodcock rail and snipe in it um uh, and when you're eating it you couldn't tell the difference between okay. any of them uh, and like you said, you, you just don't want to overcook it. You just get a hot skillet, flash fry each side, and then, yeah, you know, done. it's down the hatch. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like to eat it right out of the skillet. I don't even want it to cool down. Yeah. And all oh my gosh, it is so, so good. Yep. Um, you know, the <clears throat> my mouth waters when people talk about sandhill cranes and, and what that meat's like. And 
I just envision like this 12 pound woodcocker snipe. (laughs) (laughs) And that's hilarious right there because I mean, so many people are like, I don't shoot woodcock. It tastes horrible. (laughs) I'm like, I guarantee you, you cook your meat, you know, medium, medium well or something like that. But to your point, you know, just keep it, keep it low cooked, you know, medium rare. If it's past medium rare, yeah, it's going to taste bad. It's going to taste livery and gamey and all that stuff. But if you cook it, you still got a little bit of red and pink in the middle. You're yeah, you're exactly. gonna be good. Exactly. Uh, wood woodcock is one of them. actually it would probably be my favorite bird right now to eat. Um, you know, and before uh, I would probably said rough grouse would be my favorite bird to eat. Um, now I have a hard time eating a rough grouse. You know, well it. Uh, an Appalachian rough grouse. If I went up north and, and killed rough grouse, I'd have no problem. But you know, yeah. it's even hard to pull a trigger. You know, up in West Virginia and here in North Carolina, if you if you get a rough grouse, it's, you know, for me, it's even hard to pull a trigger on them. Uh, with yeah. the numbers over there, it, it, so. the dog work has to be perfect. You know, I, yeah. I, I've I've had some birds that I could have taken a poke at, and to your point, it's like you know, besides the dog work that I preach about on the podcast all the time. To your point, there's just not enough of them to where it's like if my dog doesn't stand for it, and, and I don't have that that moment, I don't really personally have an interest in taking one. But back to the to the eating, I kind of man, I can't really compare woodcock to grouse right that's like you know you're dealing with white meat versus red meat they're two completely different things in my opinion you know it's it's like comparing chicken to steak almost or chicken yeah. to uh, not steak but chicken to waterfowl right uh you know you're not going to really compare chicken meat to duck meat and so yeah, and, you know i wish people would get and, out and of to the, your point yeah it, rough grouse was my favorite until i discovered woodcock yeah <laughs> And, and so, I've had some know, really bad woodcock, but I've had some really good woodcock. So, yeah, well, well, that's, that's, you know, kind of the, the I, everybody fixes it a little bit different. And so I think there's a lot uh, to be had and like on social media and stuff. Some of these recipes people are putting out, uh, you know, I know people that don't even clean their birds for a week at a time yeah. and, and stuff and just kind of let them season and whatnot. And that's the way they eat them. And it makes a, they say it makes a big difference. I, I have a hard time leaving a bird out for a week and not cleaning it. <laughs> you know, that's just, yeah. you know, not the way I was brought up, but you know, I have now, um, you know, given that snipe and woodcock are, are, are smaller. If I go out and I just get one or two birds, I will put them in a bag and freeze them, but I freeze them whole and I don't clean them until I'm ready to eat them. So. Yeah. So have you messed with plucking them or do you just breast them out? So I typically will just breast them out, and then uh, a lot of times I'll keep the legs separate, and I'll wait until I get a collection of legs because the legs taste so much different than the breast. Yeah, so you just yeah. got to slow cook them till it's pretty much falling yeah. off the bone. But <laughs> it, it can be pretty good. It's just you got to have a little bit of effort to it. Yeah, and, and it's easy to overcook the breast, but I think it's even easier to kind of mess up the legs to where you, you you're not enjoying it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I do the same thing with the even ducks. You know, if if I'm not plucking the whole duck, I'll still keep the legs, and you just keep a big bag of them. Then that way you can just slow cook them. And man, it's really good when when done right. So now that you kind of have your feet under you, and you're you're kind of figuring out the ball game with with these birds, how sick of you are are you of hearing from people like snipe hunting? You know, and it, then refer back to the to the old wise tale, right? You know, how sick are you of explaining to them? No, snipe is a real 
real bird because I don't even hunt snipe. And I've had that conversation numerous times with people who are like snipe hunting, you know, and then they yeah. sit on the state DNR as a, as a season and they're like, Oh, they got me good. I'm like, no, nah, it's a real bird, buddy. <laughs> I don't mind it because that means they're not out there hunting for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're, so, you're on a podcast yeah. talking about it now. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I, I try to encourage people to go out and try them, but you know, um, you, you, you get a lot of that, but you know, interestingly, the myth around snipe is not, it's actually based partly on fact. Um, you know, back in the day before, you know, really shotguns and stuff, they actually caught snipe with a torch and a bag, a burlap bag, and they'd go out at nighttime in the middle of the night and uh, walk up on these birds and be able to shoot them into bags. And even to this day, biologists will capture woodcock and snipe for tagging and stuff they shine a spotlight in their eyes and then someone walks up to them and catches them with a fishing net uh wow. and so you know going out in the woods with a flashlight and a burlap sack is actually techniques that are still used today a little, a little more technologically advanced because there's usually someone sitting in a truck driving through a field with a spotlight <laughs> but um so but there yeah, is an element of truth to the wise tale uh, yeah, and, there, there is, and, yeah. And is this something that's just down here in the south? Like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard of a, you know, someone up in the north or out west kind of talk about this. But down here, we kind of grew up to where like somebody's uncle would try and play a trick on you, right? Like, I'll go snipe hunting at you know midnight. Here's a bag. Here's a flashlight, and go shine your light up in a tree. I don't know if it's like regional base or not, but. So you're telling me that that, that actually kind of evolved from how people used to actually hunt them. So where did it come from that snipe didn't exist? Well, I'm just taking a guess here. I can't say for sure because I've never seen anything on it. But if you think about sniper in the south in the wintertime, in the summertime, they migrate up into Canada. True. And so, yeah. you know, those old timers probably knew that you know, that's how it was done. But in the summertime, they just need something to, you know, give the kids to do or keep someone occupied. <laughs> keep them busy. Yeah. I like it. I like, it's a, that's a good um, guess. So, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, um, that, that would be kind of my response to that. So No. I love it. Well, man, I, I appreciate it. You reaching out, uh, to begin with and just offering up this topic because, you know, I, I like talking about different topics. You know, we, we cover a lot of ground. We, we talk a lot of rough grouse, obviously, and a lot of woodcock, but I, I like stepping out and this is something that, that I'd need to do. I was talking to Harold, uh, about this and it's like, man, this, this is just another opportunity we need to figure out here in middle Tennessee is, you know, we, we complain about low bird numbers and low opportunities. It's like, well, let's, let's get out and like you did, let's go figure something else out to do with these dogs. Yeah. A lot of States, you know, they have these waterfowl impoundments that they fill up every year. And some, some States it's, I mean, thousands of acres. Yeah. And so, you know, when they're filling those up, if it overlaps with snipe season or when they're draining them, um, there's a lot of habitat there that, you know, snipe could be using, um, even when they're full, a lot of the margins, you know, these are usually flat fields, uh, usually have some crop and stuff. So it's actually really prime habitat for snipe, even when they're full, there may not be as much acreage to hunt, uh, but you still find them along the edges and then some of that cover. Um, and interestingly, if you, if you look across all the upland birds right now, snipe have one of the healthiest population of all the upland birds. They're the smallest upland bird but their population is healthy. And it's one of the uh, most distributed upland birds around the world. Um, so they so have a overlooked. huge distribution. Yeah. Um, and you know, the kind of the theory is 
snipe to go back to meat quality Mm -hmm. snipe were actually commercially harvested uh back in like the 30s and 40s uh, and they were harvested to the point that uh, in 1941 to 1952, the population had crashed so much from over harvest uh, that they closed all the seasons for it. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, they were getting, you know, people that were selling the birds were selling for a dollar per dozen for the meat, which in today's market's about $30. But they were getting over a thousand snipe a week, um, you know, per person. And so you can add that up pretty quick and, and realize that that's a huge detriment to population. But, you know, that's since then, they've made this huge comeback and their health, populations are healthy. I mean, you can keep eight a day and seasons open for uh, another point on the snipe. Seasons open. It's a federally re- regulated migratory bird and seasons open 107 days a year, uh, whereas Woodcock's 45 days to my I was, I was about to say, so, so you have you more, more than season. double the season. Yeah, so, yep, exactly. So this is something to... to you know, especially in the southern region with the migration, it's like, man, you know, start paying attention to where, you know, if you're in the southeast and and you don't have the opportunities that you want on quail anymore, you know, maybe maybe give your snipe a look, you know, get give it a good long look and, and get out there and go chase something new. Yeah, and, and, and once you've figured out what snipe like as far as habitat, you know, I've had days where I've gone chasing the the, the southern bobwhite quail and I'm like, man, that field right there looks really good for snipe. <laughs> and I'll just completely abandon my plan and go snipe hunting. And that's how I've found some of my better snipe grounds is, you know, quail hunting or woodcock hunting and be like, hey, that's good snipe habitat. Yeah. Let's just do that. Yeah. Well, I know um, ne- next time I'm in North Carolina, if the season's open, I'll, I'll hit you up if you want to take somebody else take another newbie out and uh, absolutely chase I've, I've got a growing list of people that want to try it now so yeah. <laughs> well you'll have even more after this but man I, I really do appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your experience yeah, I appreciate and you having me you know i you know being heavily involved in abda i get a lot of people that you know get bird dogs and you know don't really know where to start or anything like that so i try to take new people hunting uh, yep. every single year woodcock hunting in particular just because they're so good for young dogs um, but I enjoy getting people out there and, and snipe hunting. If they don't believe that they're real, then, you know, that's their loss. So, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate it. And, man, we'll, we'll circle back, and I'll expect that update on the uh, bell or no bell uh, hypothesis yeah, it's here be shortly. Yeah, be an interesting experiment. So. Yep. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another ugly dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, Harold. So which one are you doing first? You doing snipe hunting or rail hunting first? Well, 
I've already snipe hunted, so I guess I need to go rail hunted. <laughs> but it, did you I actually go snipe hunting? Like, did you actually target snipe, or was it just like an opportunist situation? That's the thing. I was about to say, it was an opportunity. Um, it was an opportunity thing. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't like I was like, I'm going to go out and shoot some snipe today. It was like <laughs> that. Was, there was actually, I tell you what, the first snipe I ever shot was with our good buddy Tim Perkins. Um, came cruising in, just like uh, Jim said on the episode, came cruising in on our way into Woodcock cover. So, um, the next one that I shot at and missed was this season, and I was out in a dove field. It was, I say dove field is a cut corn field that doves were in on public. Um, that I was going after, and there happened to be a snipe in some big puddle of water out there. Um, so, but it's outside of that, that's it, you know, and the rail thing has had me intrigued for a while, Yeah, but I, um, I don't, I haven't seen any around and I feel like I do a lot of investigating on this lake that I don't live too far from and haven't had any, uh, encounters with them, but yeah. I'm open to it. And I think it's really cool how he hunts them with the dog because, like you said on the episode, most of them it's just you're going to see on YouTube is by boat or whatever, which is cool. But um, but we have the dogs; we want to use we have them. Dogs, so yeah. And and the uh, the fact that he's getting all that contact and all that that's super yeah. cool. Nah. And and I and it's it's inter- like I, the question you asked him was like, so is this translating over for grouse and other stuff? It's like and he didn't know, and it's like, man, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I told him I was like, man, you got to give us feedback on that. I expect an update for sure. Yeah, for sure. So now, you're I gonna just see a lot more people training on snipe and woodcock down here. Then you know, talking to him, and, and I've talked to a couple other people since he kind of brought it to my attention. And and I, I said on the episode, I kind of know who who he went hunting with, so I want to reach out to him directly and get his his honest thoughts about it. Um, it's kind of crazy to think that, like, how many people do you hear down here talk about such limited resources as far as wild bird hunting and, and upland hunting? Meanwhile, you have these two species in our backyard that not only do do you not hunt, but you don't even know anybody else that hunts it, right? It's just like, you know, you don't hear about it at your local NAVDA chapter. You don't hear about it on other podcasts. Like, I, I think I heard a rail episode way back when on on maybe Ronnie's uh, hunting dog podcast on rail. But from what I remember, they only talked about hunting it from a boat. So, like, the fact that we have two other species that we can hunt along with the woodcock and the limited quail and grouse that we always talk about, it kind of makes me think, like, man, you know, that's where your bird contacts are. And we hadn't even explored that opportunity or that option. Well, and it ain't for the lack of trying necessarily. I mean, I've been out looking around scouting for stuff and it's not that I'm not like aware of snipe and and rail and not like not, not on the lookout for them, but I just haven't found them and maybe don't know exactly what I'm looking for all the time and habitat real. I don't know what real lush habitat looks like. And I don't know, that we have a ton of that in Middle Tennessee, comparatively to the coast of the Carolinas. But so um, we'll talk offline about this. But when he was talking about like the drainage, uh, drainage waterfowl impoundments, 
I got a couple ideas on that that, uh, that I'm going to run by you, and it might be worth uh, us venturing out and, and taking a look at it. Uh, but I think... I think they're here. I mean, it, it, you know, we have a hunting season for them uh, for both rail and, and snipe here in Tennessee. They're going to be here somewhere. And, you know, it's like if, if the contacts are that that uh, plentiful, you know, in his area, we might look out and it's just like, hey, we're the only ones hunting this in, in the middle of the state, right? <laughs> and so, well, I don't know. I, I feel that way about Woodcock. I mean, so we talk up Woodcock on this show a fair amount to a point where it's like it seems normal and, and you have them on your property. So it's kind of like not it's kind of almost an afterthought, almost like how quail probably used to be. But I when I'm around my whitetail hunting and turkey hunting friends, and I'm like, I'm going Woodcock hunting. You're like, you're do- I just I can't get my brain around that. Like, <laughs> you have to be the only guy in the state that's hunting Woodcock. And it's just like part of that feels good because it's like, well. Yeah, stay at home. Good. Well, I'll, go. I'll tell you but. with that, that man, Woodcock hunters are, they're they're coming out of the woods. I mean, that or they're going into the woods, I guess is how you look at it. Because, I mean, that is one that you I'm hearing more and more about the NAVDA chapter. And it might be f- from me and my loud mouth, right? You know, I'm on it on this podcast talking about all the time. Then I go and I'm training with these people and they're like, wow, birds in Tennessee. I'm like, yeah, you can find them. Believe it or not, they're out there. Uh, but I think Woodcock is getting a healthy level of attention here in Tennessee. Um, but I, man, I can't recall anybody mentioning anything snipe or rail related. And, you know, you shot yours opportunistically up in Wisconsin. I shot mine the same exact way in North Dakota years ago, but they might be in our backyard and we might might have a, a, a resource close by that we aren't utilizing. They're around. Um, I, you know, I guess I just never thought about the, getting the dog studied up on it, mostly because, uh, the, like I said, that first one was kind of a passing shoot situation. Like they kind of were just buzzing around, and it almost felt like a waterfowl hunt. <laughs> and then the uh, <laughs> this one, like I said, it was like, oh, they're out there with doves, and you know, doves will sit tight. Like my dog is actually on a windy day in the right direction. She has pointed. A little group of doves that has happened, but you know, and they'll some of them are going to sit tight, but a lot of them are going to bust. Most of the time, the dove's going to bust. Oh, out. yeah, easy. And, and this, and those snipes were doing that that day, they were sitting in with the dove and busting out early. So, hmm. interesting. Um, I think it's doable, and I, I'd love to try it. You know, I think it's super, especially if it's uh, if I if that is the answer to our <laughs> steadiness. <laughs> instead of having to mess with a bunch of launchers. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's you know any any other wild bird contact especially the way he was describing it. Uh you know me and you both love woodcock, but uh it's it, it just seems like it, it just seems like that our dogs the the more woodcock they're on it's like they they kind of get the get the game figured out, right? And uh you know woodcock have the uh they have that reputation for for holding really well for pointing dogs or a good intro level bird. So what, when he was describing the, the snipe and everything being real flighty and the dogs really have to connect the dots on it, that kind of piqued my interest. It's, it's a bigger challenge and it's going to benefit the dog in, in the long run, uh, by handling birds like that. If that's mm-hmm. how they act all, you know, across the board, which is yet to be seen. I still need to get my dog on more woodcock actually. So, 
Well, the time. <laughs> I was about to say, season's about to <laughs> kick back in. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, is there anything else on the episode that you, you thought that you wanted to discuss or or question or anything like that? Uh, it's fun episode. It's cool talking. I mean, really, you guys kind of touched a little bit about everything. You know, the myth, the legend, and table fair, the whole nine yards. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely grew up with the whole myth myself. So. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, grew up, then you, you know, discover Hank Shaw and find, oh, this is a real thing. And, yep. You know, I don't know. Oh, so yeah. it's, it's cool. Yep. It's all coming together. I just need to get a rail and all that now. Yep. Absolutely. Well, well, with that being said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad again. I, I, I enjoy doing different topics and learning different things, right? So uh, with that being said, you know, if, if anybody else has another underappreciated species or type of hunt, uh, be sure to reach out to us. I know there's a lot of other stuff that we haven't covered, everything from, you know, the West Coast birds and, and stuff like that, but it's on the list. We're, we're hoping to get there soon. So if you have any good contacts or suggestions, be sure to shoot them our way. You know, social media, Gundog It Yourself, or uh, Gmail, Gundog It Yourself at gmail.com and uh i guess with that we can just continue on with the normal housekeeping right yeah i guess i'll jump into a little review action uh we got a new review here december um from uh al a l okay a lions <laughs> 604 that's what i'm going with uh <laughs> two-year addiction two-year addiction so a long-time listener here i started listening to this podcast Months before I even picked up my dog. This podcast has been a staple for my truck rides ever since. I learned so much from the conversations had on this podcast and couldn't begin to explain how great... Oh, sorry. He said two different words. How grateful I am for this podcast. (laughs) There's two words that said grateful. Gotcha. Not correct. (laughs) So, Anthony. Signed it, Anthony. So, I think his name is Anthony Lyons. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anthony Lyons, we definitely appreciate that. Thanks for your for your support and uh, sticking with us for, for two years. Sounds like you've been in it for the long haul. Uh, be sure to, to hit us up, man. We'll shoot you a sticker for, for taking the time. Get that sticker for that snack tote, bro. <laughs> to get the sticker to stack, put on your snack tote for sure. Oh, man. Uh, but, yeah, seriously, guys, like, you know, leave us a rating and review. You know, if, if we read your review, on on the air uh for an episode we'll shoot you a sticker just reach out to us anthony let us know that uh where to send the sticker and we'll, we'll shoot it your way and with that being said uh we've been at, getting asked a lot harold for uh stickers on the new logos uh they're on the website go to the shop gundogyourself.com uh hit the shop we have shirts hats uh stickers both the vintage logo and the new logo so be sure to check that out if you want uh if you want to support the podcast even further outside of just normal ratings and reviews be sure to check out our patreon we have a patreon or patreon only zoom meeting with kyle warren to discuss episodes 115 and 116 in more depth that's the uh true dog versus tracking dog conversation that we had with Kyle a few weeks back that kind of blew everybody's mind, man. It's like, I'm still getting a ton of feedback on that and, and clarification, uh, emails and questions and some people even, uh, debating it a little bit. So it, you know, it's instead of, 
asking me, you know, I can try and help you the best I can. I, I'm not afraid to say I don't know, but you, here's your opportunity to ask Kyle directly himself. Just sign up for Patreon and you can get that link, sign on and, and ask Kyle to, to elaborate a little bit further and, and maybe he can speak to to you and your specific situation, right? But that's only going to be available to Patreon users. Uh, so be sure to sign up for that if you'd like. And uh, with that, Harold, I know the housekeeping is, you know, our favorite thing to do every freaking week, right? Is there anything else we missed? Uh, buy a Sheltie. <laughs> buy a Sheltie. You're going to try and keep that going. Buy a snack well, tote and I a Sheltie. Yours is... <laughs> Living the dream, I guess. Mine's by Sheltie. Bob Barker's just get your cut, spayed, and neutered. <laughs> All right, man. I think the wills run dry again on this this week. So again, everybody, thanks for, uh, for for tuning in. We'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.